Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. Today our topic is the classic 1947 British film, Black Narcissus, written and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and starring Deborah Carr, my wife tells me that's how it's pronounced, Kathleen Byron, and David Farrar. The film was based on a novel, also discussed in this episode, by Rumor Godden, who happens to be Phil Ford's first cousin twice removed. But that's not the reason Phil suggested we talk about this movie, at least I don't think it was. <laughs> Black Narcissus is bonafide weird in the subtlest, most delicious sense of the word. The plot is deceptively simple. In the dying days of the British Empire, a group of nuns are sent into the Himalayas to open a convent in a disused palace, which once served as a seraglio for the local magnate's many lovers. What unfolds is a slow descent into madness that Stanley Kubrick would emulate with his usual bombast in his adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining 30 years later. Black Narcissus is an unspoilable film, so don't worry if you haven't seen it. If you do want to watch it, either before or after listening to the podcast, Criterion has a beautiful restoration of it on their new streaming channel, which, incidentally, is one of my favorite things of 2019. Speaking of which, this episode will be our last for the year. We're going to take a break for the holidays and be back with episode 63 on January 8th, 2020. This has been a truly wonderful year for Weird Studies, and I'll take this opportunity to thank you for being part of it. Special thanks goes to all our Weird Studies patrons, whose generous pledges help us take the time we need to research, record, edit, and put out the podcast every other week. If you're interested in joining the Weird Studies community, take a look at our Patreon page, which features lots of bonus content and has, over the course of the last 12 months, become a hub for a whole new kind of discussion. You can also send us an email. Our email address is admin at weirdstudies.com. Well, with that said, happy holidays. We'll see you again in 2020. Enjoy the show. would like to start with a reading. Okay. If I might. This is a passage from the novel Black Narcissus by Rumor Godden, uh, the novel on which the film Black Narcissus is based. And the film is actually quite faithful to the book. It doesn't add very much. And a lot of the dialogue is drawn pretty directly from the book. Uh, but there's some stuff in the novel. Obviously, it didn't make it in the film. And there's one dialogue between the young general, the son of the the, uh, the old general who has allowed this group of nuns to move into this disused palace in the Himalayas. Um, the young general is having a conversation with Sister Adela. 
Anon, who is in fact not in the film at all. But I found this dialogue very interesting. And as I say, it doesn't appear in the film. I suppose you are a Christian, she said, or you wouldn't be here. I'm not a Christian out loud, said Dillip. My uncle wouldn't let me change my religion. The religion of this country is a form of Hinduism, or else a low form of Buddhism. That is, in reality, animism, pronounced Sister Adela. Is it? asked Dillip, interested. How do you spell that? What is it? It's a form of pantheism, said Sister Adela contemptuously. Pantheism, he cried, writing it down delightedly. And that, how do you spell it? And what is it? Saying that God is in everything, animate and inanimate, in the trees and stones and streams. That sounds very beautiful, he said thoughtfully, but it certainly isn't true. And Sister Adela was surprised. Why are you so sure? she asked. Because, he said, we can conquer trees and streams and stones. We can cut down the forest and dam the stream and break up the stones, but we can't conquer God. Now, he, he said, pointing with his pen, might very well be in the mountain. We call it Kanchenjunga, and we believe that God is there. No one can conquer that mountain, and they never will. Men can't conquer God. They only go mad for the love of him. We have a legend in this country that among those mountains are strange men who have gone mad for love of the mountain, and because of being mad, they go naked in the snow with white hair on their necks and chests and arms, and their eyes are like ice. And whoever sees them, says Dillip, his eyes growing big, they kill and devour, and we call them the abominable men. They have gone too close to the mountain, and they are mad. You have a very vivid imagination, haven't you? said Sister Adela. Well, I got some of that out of a book, he said, modestly. But it's all perfectly true. You have to be very strong to live close to God, or a mountain, or you'll turn a little mad. I thought that was cool. That, that's the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, so jumped, we, we jumped to the end, yeah. No, that's, I love it, because, um, I mean, it just brings together several pieces that I tried to, you know, write down for myself as we were preparing to discuss this extremely unique film, uh, which I totally loved. I never watched it. I watched it for the first time last night. Um, you uh, suggested we do an episode on this film, and I was happy to because I love to watch all classics that I haven't seen. And the film is so, so philosophically, metaphysically rich. At least maybe that's the mm. space I'm in, so that's what I'm seeing. But it's it's rich in every way. I mean, it's mm. it, uh, it won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography because it made use it made uh, um, unprecedented use of color. There were audible yeah. gasps when the film was screened because people couldn't believe you could get vibrant colors like that on, on a mm -hmm. screen. Um, and the the art direction. And uh, it was all filmed at Pinewood Studios in London. It takes place in the Himalayas. It uses matte painting a lot. And, you know, uh, but... It and apparently there were a lot of old India hands that wrote into the studio saying, I know exactly where you shot that film. <laughs> right. Like a lot of people who didn't realize that there was no location shooting whatsoever. Yeah, except for the, the stuff that was shot in, in England. Yeah, well, it's yeah. set in Ireland, the parts where you see, you can definitely see that, oh, we're in a real place now. now they right. really created um, 
of the feeling of a world such that I would say that the film's not really set in the Himalayas. It's set in the British imperial imagination, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and it, it's about that, which is the way that I would use to nip at the bud any type of, I would think, unproductive discussion of the problematic nature of this film, yeah. which is it's true. Yeah, it, it has all of the prejudices of its time, um, but at the same time questions a lot of those and uh, suspends them in an interesting way. Yeah. Uh, but I would say that the film, first and foremost, accomplishes what I think is like a, a very important achievement for me anyways when I when I look at films that I consider to be great and weird is that they, they really – generate a, a sense of place of the feeling mm-hmm. of a world and it has that very in, strongly uh, very strongly and so when you read that passage um i love that it brings in the abominable snowman because it adds an, another element to the the kind of like sandbox that we're given at the beginning of the film right yeah so the film just for people who haven't seen it it's 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 about as phil said a, a group of nuns who are invited or they're given access to this palace in the Himalayas to open up a convent and school for the local children. And, uh, and also it would function as a hospital and as a herbal garden, all kinds of, it would, you know, it would just be there as a kind of community service sort of hub. And at the beginning we're, we're the, the, the nun who will head this new convent reads a letter from uh, their contact up there, who's an expat named Dean. And he, he knows the area and he sends a letter to the nuns to explain what they're getting into. And he seems to be, he, he just clearly disapproves of this entire project. Um, but in this letter, he kind of sets up the whole world and we're shown images of what he's talking about. So he's like, the locals are this way. Uh, they're very simple folk. Um, the same type of people you'll find anywhere, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, there is the palace itself and the wind is always blowing through it. And then there's the village and then there's the holy man who sits on the mountain. So we're given a kind of like, almost like a kind of chessboards being set of all the pieces, mm, all yeah. the forces that will come into play. But the passage you just read adds another one, which interestingly remains off stage in the film, which is the presence of the abominable men who've got too close to God and lost their minds as a result. And they mm-hmm. appropriately remain hidden in the film. But the minute you read that passage, they begin to haunt the film in a very interesting way. Like you wonder where they are in there. Um, yeah. So that was cool. Really the thing this film is most famous for is its visual effects. Uh, it, it should be famous for a lot more than that, but it is a famously good looking film. And the remarkable simulation of the Himalayas was accomplished, as you say, through matte paintings, particularly of the mountain. So like, okay, they're actually not in the mountains, they're in the foothills. It's still like 8,000 feet above sea level, but this is in the Himalayas and they're facing like the third highest mountain in the world. I forget what it's called. The, that's the, the English name is the Bear Goddess, which is interesting. Um, yeah. Bear, B-A-R-E, yeah. Yeah, and, and that mountain is... So almost like an offstage character. I mean, like we see it or we see these paintings which are artfully layered into the sets, the the immediate physical environment that the nuns are in, in such a way that you really feel like you're there. It's an incredibly real, very similar kind of experience. But the mountain is seldom spoken of, but it is constantly present. And the presence of the mountain 
It's actually very important to the story. Mm -hmm. I should say also, the passage I read to you makes explicit something that's only implicit in the film, which is that the mountain is a figure for God. Right. And this is a little bit like our episode on Rages of the Lost Ark. Not the Sunday school God, not a smiling bearded fellow. Not uh, Santa Claus. Not Santa Claus, uh, but something vast and incomprehensible and cruel. Anyway, so to do a little bit of plot exposition, everything takes place in the literal shadow of this mountain. So this palace, it's a palace that the old general had built as a seraglio. So all of his women, he would keep there. And you get the sense, you know, within the proprieties of a film shot in 1947, that this was a scene of sensuality, of uh, orgies, you know, spilling from one room to another. And so there's a sense of this palace as a building full of ghosts, full of the traces of its old inhabitants, you know, who are long gone and the, uh, the old general is dead and his son... Uh, wants to bring civilization and and progress to this backwards and remote part of the world. And so it's his idea to bring in religious order. Actually, this sisterhood, the sisterhood of Mary, they're not the first. There was a brotherhood that was brought in and they left abruptly after six months and nobody knows why. So the general is trying again. He didn't really approve of his father, who was a bit of a rake, didn't approve of having this palace set aside as a seraglio. And so he sets a bunch of nuns up there. And as you pointed out, Dean, the local agent, uh, kind of an image of an old colonial hand gone, if not native, to use that old fashioned expression, at least somebody who has relaxed into a modus vivendi which is no longer exactly English, uh, but not quite of the place either. Uh, but Dean already knows, he sees the writing on the wall, that this is never going to work. And he tells him right from the beginning, that's no place to put a nunnery. He says, I give you until the rains break. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they move in the end of the summer, I yeah. think. Uh, and the rains break in the, the spring, right? So this takes place over a short year. So the nuns move in and the ghosts, no, I'm speaking somewhat metaphorically, not literal ghosts, but... The That's ghosts important though. The, it's not a ghost story. It's not yeah. explicitly a ghost story. That's really important to know. There is no hint of the supernatural till the end. Yeah. But nevertheless, when I was pitching this idea to you, I said, it's like The Shining, but with nuns. I was going to bring up The Shining again because the, the parallels yeah. are, are uncanny. And this yeah. palace really is a lot like the Overlook Hotel. Now, the way The Shining, both the novel and the movie go, the place is teeming with actual ghosts, with supernatural entities that fuck with the human characters. In this case, that's not the case. But nevertheless, there's something about the place that brings old emotional wounds to the surface. Uh, these nuns who have put away their worldly life, in some cases for decades, suddenly find themselves kind of going to pieces as they remember, you know, disappointments in love. The main character, Sister Clodagh, who's the mother superior 
a young woman who, who's been put in a position of great authority. Played by um, Deborah, De- Kerr. Deborah Kerr, who is, I yeah. find her so stunningly beautiful anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah, on. I know. And, uh, and amazing and she, actress too. <laughs> She's really, I, I love well, her. Yeah, because, because almost all of the shots of her with her wimple, except yeah. for a few flashbacks of her life earlier in Ireland. And you get the idea that she was disappointed in love, that a man that she loved and thought she was going to marry actually didn't feel the same way and ran off to America to seek his fortune. And she is a headstrong, rather stubborn and very proud person. You kind of get the impression that she, you know, fled into monastic service as a way of almost taking charge of the situation, almost a kind of you can't fire me, I quit kind of situation. Right, right. You, you you get that idea, and she and Dean clash throughout the film and the novel, for that matter, because uh, because she's so headstrong. But at the same time, uh, there's a kind of an attraction between her and Dean. Uh, yeah. They actually like each other, and there maybe is even some kind of warm feeling under the under the surface. It's sort of ambiguous. It's clear in the film at the end. It becomes quite clear, but yes, it's kept ambiguous yeah. throughout. Yeah. Right, right. But except for those flashback scenes of her earlier life in Ireland, you always see her with this wimple. So you only see her face, like, and just the front part of the face from about the mid brow down around to just under the chin, just like a cutout of a face. And so like the hair and so much of what makes a human individual an individual to our sight, you know, the shape of their skull and the way their hair looks and the conformation of their head with their body, like all of that is erased by the monastic garments that she wears, this wimple. And so Deborah Kerr has a it's almost like she has to do all her acting through this tiny little window. Yeah. And yet her face just delicately reflects every passing emotion. Like you have a cup of water and you can see every little bump and footfall reflected in the, uh, in the surface of the water. That's yeah. what her face is like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that in itself is interesting. The, 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 the pallor of her face too. And then the, the whiteness of the, of the, uh, of the habit of the nun's habit yeah. that she wears and the way that these nuns kind of stand out of this lush, colorful world that they've been thrown into. And they stand out because of their colorlessness, right? Yes. Their absolute kind of like almost vampiric whiteness. Yes. It's either the color of purity, but perhaps also the color of death yeah. and non-being. Of non-being, yeah. There's a, a clear um, indication in that regard at the beginning of the film where they're So Sister Cloda is learning of her mission that she's going to have to go. She's in Calcutta at the beginning. So they have a convent in Calcutta and her, the mother superior gives her the task of heading up this new convent up in the Himalayas. And um, they put a lot of emphasis on the ceiling fans that are constantly spinning in the Calcutta convent. So there are all these Mm. ceiling fans everywhere and you can hear them constantly and you see the shadows of the fans and you see the fans themselves. And they're talking about this place she's going to, which is really, really windy. So you get the sense that the convent in Calcutta is this controlled space where wind is under control. Wind has been mastered mm. by, by the Western technological apparatus. We have these ceiling fans that control the air circulation. And now she's going to this palace that's basically exposed to these wild winds that cannot be stopped. Like there's just no way they, they just get the wind gets in through the cracks. There's no way to make this palace 
undrafty. It's just like, yeah. it's, and so there's this idea that they're in a, in a really kind of controlled uh, space and that these nuns, by moving into the Himalayas, are exposing themselves to elements that they've been able to kind of stave off or cordon themselves off from up to right. now. And that's part of the force that that screws everything up is this this exposure to the elements that that they've been able to deny. And then, so it manifests as the wind ripping through the palace, but also manifests as the sudden upsurge of the past as a, as yeah. something that's not really past. It's still, pl- that's still, f- still actively uh, influencing them. So she'll get these kind of Proustian uh, resurgences of the past that come back to her as she's trying to pray. All of a sudden she remembers every detail of that day where her boyfriend back in the day gave her a piece of jewelry or her mother her grandmother gave her these emeralds and she's remembering um the, the this past the past becomes alive again the past becomes one of these natural forces that will undo um this attempt uh, to mm-hmm. control and you can yeah. easily see the parallel between that and uh you can e- easily see in that a kind of commentary on the end of the british empire the british empire's ultimate failure to maintain itself in a world yeah. where these elements are always at play as it was, um, the film came out just months before Indian independence, right? 1947. Mm-hmm. So the film came out almost as a kind of dirge to the British Empire. Yeah. And it has very often been read as such, as a yeah. as a statement about the death of British colonialism and, and the futility of British colonialism. It's hard not to read uh, it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny the political subtext of this film. But at the same time, there's so much more to it. Like, okay, so one little example. The major development of the story is that, as we were saying, exposure to this wind, exposure to the mountain, exposure to this impossibly crystalline, clear air, all of these forces are acting upon the sisters, the five sisters who were sent into the mountains. And most of them come a little bit undone. Mm-hmm. So Sister Ruth is a problem, and we know this from the very first scene where Sister Clodagh is talking to her superior and is being appointed mother superior. So she's been given her team to go into the mountains. And so the, the old mother superior says, okay, you can have Blanche. She's very popular and cheerful, and you'll need that. You can have Bryony. She's very strong, and you'll need her strength. Um, Philippa. And... You can have Philippa, who will grow vegetables, and you need that. And you can have Ruth. (laughs) And immediately you can see that's a problem. Every organization has somebody like this, somebody who is just not right with the organization. Maybe they join for the wrong reasons, or maybe they just don't have the strength to do what's demanded of them. You get the impression at first you don't know what Ruth's problem is. She's just always ill. Uh, We're shown this by we get a kind of a shot of the nuns at this Calcutta nunnery sitting down for dinner. And you see each of the different nuns who are going to make it up into the Himalayas. And Ruth's place is just an empty chair. Yeah. And so we know there's something wrong with her. And it becomes clear as the film goes along. She's always on the verge of hysteria. She has these rages that overtake her and she loses control of her emotions. She's one of those people who's always doing the wrong thing, who needs to be praised, but she's always fucking up. So she never gets the praise that she wants. 
you get the feeling that she's a lonely and uh, sad person who responds disproportionately to any kind of praise. So at one point, Mr. Dean tells her that she did a good job doing something and she instantly falls in love with Mr. Dean. Right. Um, she's just that kind of a person. And what's interesting is that when you see her in the classroom, one of her jobs is to assist Sister Blanche in the classroom where the little local children come to learn English. And Sister Ruth is strident and authoritarian and dislikable. And she's always saying racist shit about the kids, like, oh, they all look the same to me and, and things like that. And this is quite deliberate. This is in Rumor Godden's uh, novel as well. And I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, we see two sides of Ruth. We see the side that she shows the children. And she just looks like any kind of harsh, mean, like, uh, you know, think of any kind of authoritarian teacher you've ever had. Somebody with like a hard voice, never smiling, never encouraging, always punishing, always chastising, intolerant and small minded and vindictive. You know, the very picture of arbitrary authority. But then we see the side of that she shows the nuns in their daily interactions. And we see somebody who's weak and going mad. And it's a really interesting, you know, so this is getting back to the sort of thing like, well, you can't not think of the political subtext of this. But I would argue that the political subtext blends seamlessly into the psychological oh, subtext. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that the, the authoritarianism of, of, uh, of colonialism always has the seed of madness in it. Right. However rational its administrative forms, there's a seed of madness in it. And Sister Ruth is a wonderful figure. She's the only really dislikable figure. The other nuns are all trying in their way to do right by the people that they find themselves among. They fuck it up completely and they, they disastrously by the end, but they try. And Sister Ruth is the one who really seems to be like the classic colonialist, like contemptuous and ignorant of the people that she's around. And, yeah. And, and that we see that beneath that is this roiling madness. It's a really interesting commentary on the authoritarian personality. I, I like that reading. I would just add that Sister Ruth is presented to us as a sick person. Yeah. So the nuns aren't, oh, she's unruly or she's too authoritarian. That's not why Sister Clara. It's because she's ill. And so there's a, uh, um, and there's, a, there's a moment where Sister Ruth really starts to overstep her boundaries. She starts to talk back to Sister Clara. And Clara re always responds with kind of empathy and, and patience because we all know that Ruth's not well. So at the same time, yes, she is this roiling mad authoritarian but the nuns are aware that this ultimately yes. is just rooted in her, the fact that she's extremely sensitive. Yeah. And um, I think that's important because, you know, I was just it's so funny. I was I was thinking about Sister Ruth in terms of I don't know what to say first. There's two things I want to talk about. I'll start with this. At the beginning, the mother superior in Calcutta is uh, standing with Sister Clara on a kind of balcony, and they're looking down at the refectory where the, the nuns are eating. And the mother superior is pointing out the nuns that Sister Clara will take with her. And when she gets to Sister Ruth, she points at an empty space. So Sister Ruth is, at this moment, construed as the exception. 
She's the exception. She's the nun that doesn't fit in, as you just said. And this made me think of um, of our episode on Silence of the Lambs and of Alex's comment on that episode. So after we put out the Silence of the Lambs episode, Alex Reed, who's a very intelligent um, listener and also a very learned person, he says that he has an issue with our take on Hannibal Lecter and his function or his role or his the archetype that he plays out in the, in the film. He writes, I note the reverence with which the weird mindset beholds the singular individual. It's very similar to the way that Wilde's Lord Henry sees in Dorian Gray, quote, a form of genius that needs no explanation, end quote. It is James Bond as Fleming imagined his own alter ego. It's perhaps akin to the way that male freshman philosophy majors aspirationally conceive of the Ubermensch and the way that anarcho-capitalist bros look at Elon Musk. It is how Trumpists view the U.S. president. Simply put, it is the stock character of the exception, who by definition is not subject to laws, but around whom laws bend. Whatever Lecter says about his lack of origins or unclassifiable nature, this is absolutely a type. Sure as the Joker is a printed card in a deck. The exception is a category of narrative and of the imaginal. From our own insufficient or masturbatory vision, we repeatedly create reality tunnels in literature, film, and life that do not contain him. It is neither tricky nor revelatory to cackle. He is uncontainable. Instead, the exception is a mathematical fact of those reality tunnels. When the exception proves, of course, to be the exception, it feels less like a philosophical coup than like playing the child's card game War, where the high card wins against a cheating second grader. The end of it says, The exception, as most writers have in practice imagined it, is hardly the boundary-exploding mystery we suppose. At its most interesting, it could be, say, the monolith. But more often, it takes human form, almost always white and male. He is self-important, unbounded by sympathy. Basically, he's an asshole. Hannibal, Dorian Gray, Trump, Musk, Bond, and every ubermensch except Neo and Jesus. I appreciate that the episode connects Hannibal at the film's end with the worm in the apple of the world. That's an important and distinguishing move, but too often fictions and their audiences allow the exception character to be just edgy hashtag goals. So I, I thought this was an unsympathetic reading of what we were doing in that show. Um, and I think that we have an opportunity here to show why. The nuns read Sister Ruth as the exception because the nuns presuppose a particular construal of reality. Reality as knowable, controllable, uh, manageable. And Sister Ruth doesn't fit in, so she's the exception. But what, what do we see in the film happening? We see that this exception actually becomes what, what she actually is, is a singular motif, a dissonant note in the, the, the piece of music, let's say, that is the convent, the order of nuns, who in the end shows us that every note is dissonant. Mm, exactly. All the other nuns are singularized partly because of her. It's her, her she lets in the forces that will unravel everyone. And I think that's how we were reading Hannibal Lecter, not as the exception. The exception is the singularity from the perspective of the control apparatus, from the perspective of the, the kind of uh, what we call it, the, the, the molar system, as Deleuze and Guattari might call it. But the exception is just a perspective on the singular. 
But what the singular reveals is that everything is singular, that all the units that are we're trying to control are already singularities, yeah. that every nun is a Ruth. And so what you have in the film is the undoing of a way of seeing the world, a way that would allow for exceptions by reifying rules, whereas in fact, what a singular um, oriented ontology would suggest is that there are only singularities, that there are only exceptions. And so in Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter is just the singularity that allows for the singularization of of Agent Starling, but also of Buffalo Bill in Agent Starling's mind so that she can think of him as a singularity and therefore catch him instead of thinking him as either a type or an exception. It's like mm -hmm. by thinking of him as he is in himself that Hannibal Lecter is able to give her the clues she needs to find him. So that it's like two ways of looking at the world. And if you look at the, how the nuns are portrayed in the film, um, it reminded me of a, of a, a wicked, wicked passage from Difference in Repetition by Gilles Deleuze, where he talks about one particular type of what he calls indifference, um, an ontological idea of indifference that we see at work in Western thinking is what he calls the white nothingness. There's the black nothingness, which is everything is so saturated with non-diff, with sameness that it's just this black abyss. But then at the other end of the, of the spectrum, there's a white nothingness in which differences emerge, but they can't be connected to one another. So he talks about the white nothingness in which you'll find like just body parts floating. That's his image. So a face, uh, an elbow, a this, a that. And that made me think of the, the nuns, the white habit with just a few body parts showing hands and with faces. A, with, a, with a face projecting out of this right. undifferentiated sheet of whiteness. This is total indifferentiated sheet of whiteness. Exactly. And um, in this talk I was listening to by, just coincidentally last night, this talk by Tim Ingold, an anthropologist. He, he, he was talking about the white nothingness of Deleuze and relating it to our Western idea of ground and figure. So... The way we think about the world in the West, so the way we have thought for a long time about the world, is in terms of things existing in a space. So we think about there's a neutral ground, so there's the ground, and then on this ground there are buildings and coffee cups and people and hills. Even the hills are on the ground. The ground is always abstracted from the actual topography. There's an even ground, like sea level. The idea of sea level is ground, mm -hmm. and then everything is on top of that. But of course, sea level doesn't exist in the way you won't find, a, oh, here's sea level. You know, it's just, uh, it's a calculation based on where the sea hits uh, a landmass. But um, we always abstractify the ground. And, and Ingold was observing how strange that is, because it what it does is it, it, first of all, it needs to make all the features on a particular, all the figures on a particular ground, abstract, discrete objects. Then it invents a ground underneath it and then sees that invented artif artificial ground as the reality on which mm -hmm. all these things exist. That's mm. the white nothingness in which just parts exist. And then you have to explain how these parts are connected and you can't, they're just body parts. Right. And that's kind of what uh, there's a moment in the film where um, one of the nuns is saying, like, it seems like all we can do in this in this place is we either have to go the route of, you know, Dean and become like libertines or we have to be like the holy man on the mountain and basically ignore it all. And Sister Claudius, like we're trying to do neither. Um, it's this idea that the the um, 
the Western Christian idea of a neutral space, let's say Christ as the same underneath all humans, this idea that we can, everything boils down to this neutral space. That's what is attacked. That's what's made incoherent in this space where ground isn't just this abstract space on which things exist, but rather uh, ground is the weird, univocal, imminent foldedness of the world where everything is already embedded with everything else. And there's no outside perspective that you can jump to, to judge any part of it. So that the Mm -hmm. nuns are finding themselves just, even their whole system of control, their whole system of thought is itself just another fold in this Himalayan landscape. And so Mm -hmm. they have no defense against the elements. They're just thrown out of this white nothingness that they could believe in before. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just found there was an interesting connection with our Silence of the Lambs episode when we're talking about exception versus singularity. It's really important mm. because Ruth really is the singularity that allows ultimately all these nuns to benefit from this experience, to become more yeah. singular, to become more yeah. conscious, um, and maybe even more Christ-like. You know, Dean's often reminding the nuns of their Christianity. He's the libertine, but he's the one who says, what would Christ do? reminding them of what it is that they live for, not Mm -hmm. a kind of neutral ground that we have to level everything down to this kind of idea of divine judgment or divine transcendence, but rather Christ as this figure that was able, like uh, Alex says, he's like uh, basically a a sympathetic ubermensch. He's sympathetic precisely because he approaches things in terms of singularities and doesn't totalize. And so... That's what Dean suggests the nuns do. And in the end, that's kind of what Clara has to do in order to accept the situation. That's why she asks Dean at the end to take care of Ruth's grave. All things are equal now. I agree. And that was the first thought I had when I read Alex's comment was that he is wanting to understand. I mean, I think he's quite right when he talks about there's a recurrent figure uh, and a figure manifested in, you know, all of the people he mentions, James Bond and Donald Trump and so on, um, of somebody who fulfills a certain kind of person's longing for an exception, somebody who is not subject to the same rules that the rest of us are, a lone wolf. And my first thought was, yeah, but the way at least I I thought we were talking about Hannibal Lecter was as an exemplary figure of singularity uh, that kind of tells the truth about our condition, like who we all are. Yes. All of us are condemned to our own singularity. I'm sort of echoing Sartre said, man is condemned to be free. You know, man is condemned to be singular. And when they say man, you know, humanity, whatever, um, paraphrasing that line of Sartre's, uh, for whatever complicated reasons, I find that contemporary American intelligentsia, the intellectual and academic mainstream, is very hostile to the idea of singularity. There's always a desire to read people in terms of types. The prestige and power of sociological thinking, which is all about creating social types and explaining situations and terms of those types, or think of uh, Bourdieuian sociology of taste, which insists on reducing everything that you might possibly like to your social economic status. And it's not just sociology, it's just you also see it in 
the forms of debate that I think are sort of like loosely derived from those academic sort of postmodern habits of mind, uh, identity politics generally that seeks to understand all utterances in terms of the speaker's racial, gender, class, etc. position, that all utterances get understood as an expression of a certain kind of type. This is the world that we live in, at least here in the in, in Canada and in the United States. And there's just a very powerful inbuilt suspicion of anybody who's going to insist on singularity. I think the critique that Alex is making is, you know, certainly on point for the examples that he's giving. Of course. And, and there are plenty of people who read Hannibal Lecter that way. As yeah. the exception, the cool guy who's like, oh, he's he's aware that he knows that there's no good and evil. He knows. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I hate that shit. And it, yeah. it is a projection of a certain kind of rather weak right. and silly individual. That is a kind of bad faith because, you know, if you're a fan of that kind of posture, then Hannibal Lecter or Donald Trump or whomever becomes your delegate from the right. id. You, it becomes like, oh, he can rebel for me. He can be singular on my behalf. He's doing it so I don't have to. Right. And it becomes a kind of proto-fascism, which is precisely the delegation of all of the id to some figure who then will perform or manifest that which you are not able to perform and manifest in your life. Precisely. Yeah. And I don't think that Alex is doing this, but I think that a direction that that critique goes in the hands of less thoughtful and reflective individuals is the everything leads to fascism line that academics love. Everything leads to fascism, everything that you don't like. So for example, the idea of this uh, individual who exemplifies the singularity of the human. Each human being is a human event, and each event is an unrepeatable singularity. There's a, a style of thinking that says, well, that kind of thinking leads to fascism because we can see the ways that people do, in fact, enlist fictional archetypes of that as uh, their delegates as somebody who is doing something that they dare not do in their own lives uh, and doing perhaps really horrible things. The kind of Ayn Rand take on all this, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. But that kind of more simplified and um, argument to me is a kind of bad faith because it just seems to me to be, you know, intellectuals are always looking for an opportunity to change the subject every time something comes up to challenge their typological thinking. Right. I mean, in, I don't know if intellectuals of every generation like to think this way, but certainly in the intellectuals in our generation seem very fond of this style of thought that simplifies the world by reducing utterances to the types that are presumed to have uttered them. And that to me is a kind of bad faith because you are absolving yourself of the responsibility of taking things as they come, of following lectors' advice and asking of each person particular thing, what is it in itself? Right. That takes a lot of work. And if you'd lived that way to the exclusion of any kind of typological thinking, you would be insane. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously you need to have some 
interplay between your ability to face the uniqueness of a given situation or thing and your ability to understand it as a manifestation of a certain class. You need universals, in other words. Yeah, yeah you yeah, absolutely exactly. need universals to have particulars. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's, why, that's why Plato is still in, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, still and, in the uh, picture. And, 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 but, and, and then that's the, that's, but that's the problem with modern thinking in general. It's that it's predicated on an ethos of suspicion. That begins with Descartes, um, when Descartes suspects the world, right? Because Descartes' first move is, I'm going to doubt everything. Everything mm -hmm. will, will be held suspect. What, what's left? Me. I'm the only thing that exists. That's the inaugural move of modernity. And uh, yeah. it haunts all modern thought systems. And so it leads to, you know, what Ricard called, he called the, the three masters of suspicion, right? Um, Marx, mm -hmm. Freud, and Nietzsche, who with them, the object of suspicion is no longer just the idea of the real or truth or self or God. For them, what becomes suspect is the fabric of everyday life, the common life, the common world we share. And that style of critique then becomes de rigueur, you know, by mm -hmm. the mid 20th century, where every expression of sentiment or every idiosyncratic take on a particular film, like uh, even the fact that we're now discussing Black Narcissus without spending half at least of our time uh, pointing out its problematic aspects, any, any type of trust in the world. Like, let's trust that this film has something to say. Let's trust that things are revealing themselves as they are to us, as opposed to mm -hmm. in a kind of weird demonic um, distortion. Um, that's held suspect under okay. Freud and Marx. And so there's just, there's just nothing good to say. We end up in that thing we were talking about with uh, Jeff Kripal, where the, the right answer is always the most depressing one. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, again, I'm not trying to put this on Alex at all. But, no, no. But at the end of his message, he writes, anyhow, as long as the trump card, meaning the exception, is a person, we will remain anthropocentric. As long as it is played with narrative gusto, it will be read more often as awesome than as awesome, capital A. Mm. So Hannibal Lecter, as opposed to the black monolith. And every discrete articulation of the singular reduces the very idea of the singular. To dismiss Hannibal with an eye roll is to disarm him in ways that no other weapon can. Every discrete articulation of the singular reduces the idea of the singular. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems to me like the idea of the singular is precisely that things are discrete articulations. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you can't just have the idea of the singular floating outside and applicable to anything but people, which yeah. is what I'm reading here. Well, actually, what that reminds me of more than anything else is a kind of Abrahamic religion, sort of monotheist anxiety around representations which you find in Islam, but you find it in a lot of strains of Christianity as well. And in Judaism, the idea... An iconoclasm, right. There's the desire always to allow the principles that govern the universe remain abstract and unrepresented. That in this case, we're talking about that force, that nuclear force that creates individuations that creates these little singularities of individual human beings or individual things in the world, right? Hmm. Um, and that's a force that is sort of godlike. We could personify it as a kind of a god. 
And then what it follows immediately is the feeling that such things cannot be represented, that we are fine with the idea of singularity so long as it remain abstract, mm-hmm. so long as it remain a black monolith and not an actual person. Right. Or something that you could put in a film, but because to show it in a film is necessarily, to represent it is necessarily to falsify it. Perhaps there's a fear of idolatry. You know, what is idolatry? It's the fear that the representation of the divine uh, or of the more than human be mistaken for the more than human. Right. And there's this anger and panic around the idea of the fetish. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's a really great little passage that I'd like to read out apropos of that, that appears at the beginning of a book by Bruno Latour called... Um, the Factish oh, Gods? Is, yeah, on the Factish Gods. Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah, so as a kind of uh, epigram, it's a little one-page almost like a Don Bartleby-like short story that's just one page long that purports to be a dispatch from an emissary to China from the Korean royal court in the mid-18th century. And this is this purported uh, diplomatic dispatch. The light-skinned peoples living in the northern reaches of the Atlantic are said to have a peculiar way of worshipping the gods. They go on expeditions to other nations, seize statues of their gods, and destroy them in huge bonfires, insulting them with cries of fetish, fetish, a word that in their barbaric language seems to mean forgery, nonsense, lie. Though they insist that they have no fetishes, and that it was their own idea to free other nations from such things, they seem to have very powerful gods. Indeed, their expeditions frighten and fill with dread the peoples who are attacked in this way by rival gods, who these people call Modun. Get it? Modun? Modern? Yeah. Yeah. And whose power appears as mysterious as it is invincible. It seems that in their own lands they have built many temples, and the way they worship inside them is as strange, frightening, and barbaric as it is outside. During great ceremonies, repeated from generation to generation, they smash their idols to pieces with hammers. They seem to benefit significantly from these ceremonies, for once they have freed themselves from their gods, they can do whatever they please. (laughs) They can mingle the forces of the four elements with those of the six kingdoms and the 36 hells without feeling at all responsible for the violence they unleash. Once these orgies have ended, these peoples are said to fall into deep despair. At the feet of their shattered statues, they cannot help but hold themselves responsible for everything that happens, which they call human or free will subject, or else they believe, on the contrary, that they are responsible for nothing at all, and that they are entirely produced by what they call nature or causal objects. The terms are hard to translate into our language. Then, as if terrified by their own daring, and in order to put an end to their despair, they repair the Modan gods they have just broken, making countless offerings and sacrifices. They put their gods back up at the crossroads, holding them together by iron hooping as we do for barrel staves. They are also said to have created a god in their own image. In other words, one just like themselves, sometimes absolute master of all he does and sometimes completely non-existent. These barbaric peoples do not seem to understand what it means to act. 
so what we were talking about before the break was Sister Ruth as a kind of singularity that the other sisters have to kind of handle. They have to manage her. And of course, she becomes ungovernable. And as you point out, there's a way in which actually Sister Ruth, by attempting to kill Sister Clodic, which she does at the end where she tries to push her off the ledge of the mountain that they're perched on and ends up falling to her own death. Uh, from a certain point of view, that's almost like a sacrifice she performs. Hmm. Sister Ruth is both a cause and an effect. I mean, she clearly seems to be undone by the same forces as all the other sisters, by the wind, by the persistent blankness of the mountain, by the very stones of the earth that they find themselves in. Uh, she is an effect, but also a cause. But the point is that this is something that in a way is positive, that the sisters all have to kind of get real with who they are, that they have to become who they are. And it's actually more clear in the novel than it is at the end of the film. There was one scene that was shot that never made it into the film that happens after they leave the Himalayas and end up back in the mission in Calcutta, where the sister superior is talking to sister Clodic and says, basically, now I feel like I can trust you. Hmm. Now I feel like you have truly learned something. Because at the beginning, the Sister Superior actually is pretty harsh to Sister Claudia. You're not ready. Yeah. You're not ready. Yeah. She says, like, this isn't my idea to put you in charge of this convent. And it's clear that she thinks that Sister Claudia has too much pride, is too convinced of her own ability to manage situations through her own will. And this becomes very clear. It's actually oh, a beautiful moment that Deborah Kerr manages, this flicker of a smile of triumph that you see play across her face when she is told that she'll be the youngest sister superior in their order. Yeah. And then the reaction shot from the older sister superior who looks at her through narrowed eyes and can see, if you are proud of assuming this command, you're not ready for this command. Right. If you think that this is a matter of things that you can manage through the blunt force application of your will, you've got another thing coming. And much of the story of Sister Claudic is her trying and failing to do the typical things that you do in a management situation. Just tell people to work hard. At one point, she tells Sister Philippa, well, you just have to work harder so that you're not having all of these memories dredging up from the past. She says, you just have to work harder. And then Philippa shows her her hands, which are just scarred and yeah. blistered and swollen uh, and realizing like, no, there comes a point, and this is actually, I think, an important point in spiritual life and spiritual development, that hard work isn't the answer to everything. No. Hard work can be a way to evade. Exactly. Yeah. Um, being like, oh, I'm going to be the world's greatest meditator, you know? Uh, I'm going to sit in Zazen for six hours every day or whatever. It's just sort of like, and in this manner, I'm going to triumph over uh, all of the things that hold me back. I'm going to triumph over samsara. I'm going to triumph over my own limitations and so on through the application of will. If you're that kind of person, you need to have your will broken yeah. before you can really understand the limits of yourself, of your own power. And that is exactly what happens to Clodek when Ruth at the end, completely crazed, attacks Clodek and ends up killing herself by accident. And it 
breaks Clodagh and it actually allows her to become softer and more gentle and more understanding and more compassionate. It actually allows her to be the person that she was supposed to be in the first place. Right. Beautiful. And so we can see how the film gives us an example of the type of singularization we're talking about now. It's not individuation in the sense that, you, that at the end she's more herself than she was. No. She's a little less herself. She's, she's more submissive, more a part of the convent. Yeah, more able to be part of a body, like mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it's the body that is the, the order of nuns or the body, the mystical body of Christ or the body of the world, the mountain. Mm-hmm. The, she's a little bit more porous. And uh, she lets things flow through her. She's achieving that kind of middle voice between the active and the passive voice. And this is something that obviously Dean, the libertine character, has in his own way, through a story we're not told, achieved. Um, he's able to exist. He, you know, They really like to contrast him as a libertine, as a kind of hedonist or this expat guy who's abdicated his responsibilities or whatever. It was just kind of floating through the world. They contrast him with the holy Who man. Who refuses to mouth the same pieties that all the other white characters in this story right. mouth. They contrast him with the holy man who used to be a general and now is a holy man sitting on a mountain, the kind of sadhu. Um, but in fact, those guys are a little, much more similar than they are different in the sense that they've all come to terms with the overwhelming nature of the real and that individuation needs to be countered with a kind of singularization, which, which inheres in an acceptance of, of absolute singularity of the absolute singular nature of all things. And therefore we just have to accept this world as it is. And it's, again, that's a comment on empire and imperialism and that the whole modern project of turning the world into a, a graveyard of idols. Well, there's a line that you quoted from the film, which I'm going to bring up again, and I'm reading this from the novel, and there's one small but important difference that the novel has. Uh, The quote is, I think there are only two ways to live in this place, said Sister Philippa. You must either live like Mr. Dean or like the sannyasi, the holy man who sits on the mountain. Either ignore it completely or give yourself up to it. And in the film, Sister Claudic says, neither would do for us. But in the book, what I like is, which is which? Asked Sister Claudia. Wow, yeah, and, she, right. and she added, neither would do for us. Small but telling difference, because the thing is that the sadhu, or the sannyasi, the holy man, who used to be a general and a man of great accomplishment in the world, uh, now sits almost naked to the wind on this mountainside, unmoving, day after day, unspeaking, staring at the mountain across. And so you're like, oh, well, he has completely given into it. He has become one with the mountain. Um, And perhaps that is interchangeable from being like a union with God, which is implied in the passage that I read right at the beginning of this. Um, But then at the same time, it's equally possible to see him not as giving himself up to the mountain, but ignoring it completely. Because it's pointed out repeatedly through both the novel and the film that the doings on the mountain, all this drama happening at the convent is of absolutely no import to him. He is functioning on a level many layers above that of the quotidian doings of human beings, loves and deaths and uh, passions and so on. 
He is beyond all of that shit. In fact, he's explicitly set up in several shots in the film as almost like a kind of um, an overseer, a kind of an omniscient character. Like all of this stuff is happening and then we get a cutaway to the sannyasi with his face blank, unmoving, staring perennially across at the mountain. Uh, so when the general's favored son dies at the beginning. And we don't see that happen, but we hear these drums beating for several minutes and we're told, oh yeah, they beat the drums while the general's son is sick. And if the drums stop, you'll know he's dead. And then at a certain point, the drums stop. And that's how we know that he's died. And that is important because that precipitates the young general, the general's younger son. That is what causes him to come to the convent. And there are consequences of that as well. But in the film, when the drums stop and we have that sort of sense of like, oh, he died, we get a cut to the impassive face of the sannyasi. Well, the, the drums stop while we're looking at him. Yes, we're, we're that's seeing right. him and that's the drums right. stop and he doesn't react. Yeah. And it has this wonderful implication of like, there's a level of perception at which this is just another death. This is just another day, another revolution around the sun. There's a point that transcend that looks down upon all of these things unmoved, that transcends the passions of the situation. And this sannyasi is kind of built up to be, he's not a character because he never says anything, but he's sort of a figure who serves that function. He is sort of the mountain himself. Right. He's hardly human at all. Um, and so is that ignoring the world that they're in or is that giving himself to it completely? It's not clear which. And the same thing with Dean. Did he give himself up entirely to this new existence in the mountains? To the forces of Eros and whatever that flow through it? And is he just giving yeah, exactly. in? Or is he ignoring the horror of the situation by, you know, getting drunk and, 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 yeah. and, and you know, smoking his pipe and... It's really not clear. It's not clear at all. Yeah. So yeah, which is which, as Sister Claudia says, but only in the novel. The other obvious question is, does Sister Claudia end up choosing one of those or doing something new? She doesn't quit being a nun at the end. You see, this to me is like the question. Right. Ultimately, you know, this is a, a religious novel it's, and it's a religious film, even though it's about eros and madness and and so on. But it's well, what religion rel isn't about eros and madness. Yeah, really. exactly. <laughs> it's a very religious film in that sense. Um, that this is the question that spiritual practice brings to us. Okay, there's a sort of thing that happens in religious communities. How do you deal with the madness that is the world? Now, in Zen, you simply take it as it is. You know, there's a very powerful ethos in Zen of asking of each particular thing, what is it in itself and taking it as it is, not in terms of what you want it to be or thinking whether you like it or hate it. Or what you expected it to be. Yeah. Or what do you expect it to be? It just is what it is. And you, and you work with things on that level, right? And so from that point of view, Zen is the least otherworldly religion. And yet, as I think I mentioned in the Dogen episode, you know, sometimes you will find people who have managed somehow to flip it so they're totally on the opposite tip. The world as it is, full of samsara, full of craziness, full of stupid passions and pointless, unappeasable hunkers, a world of hungry ghosts and fighting warrior spirits. You know, you see the world 
pretty clearly as that. I mean, one thing that spiritual practice can do is really sharpen up your perception of all the suffering that you see going on around you. And you know what helps. Meditation helps. The Dharma helps. And so little bit by little bit, you find yourself moving away from that world of samsara and towards a world of peace and a world of contemplation set apart from the world. You know, in other words, you turn your back upon the world. And this question, like, do you give yourself up to it or you do you ignore it completely? Um, to me, at a certain point, I, I kind of rebelled a little bit against Zen practice because I kind of felt like, I remember saying to myself, there's no cure for the human condition. I know I, I didn't invent that phrase. It's been said many times before, but the reality of that phrase, the meaning of it hit me very hard indeed. But what I didn't realize when I kind of had that feeling was that I was really just kind of dealing with a fundamental kind of polarity between ignoring the world completely and giving yourself up to it. Either that A is, or B. Either A or B, yeah. you know, give, giving yourself up to it could mean just like chasing pleasures, uh, running away from hardships and difficulties, um, you know, living the way it's a sort of a futile pleasure seeking existence, right? But then ignoring it completely ends up being just as unsatisfying. And likewise, you can say like, which is which? That is the basic religious question. Yeah. And for me, you know, coming back to Zen practice in the last year has been kind of revisiting this question, you know, dealing with the madness of the world, ignore it completely, give yourself up to it, or perhaps not A and not B. Then what is that not A and not B? This film doesn't try to tell us that, but it is about that. At the beginning, I mentioned that that, in, that one of the things this film does really well is give you, give you a sense of place, uh, a, uh, the sense of a world, a little world that's somehow just works on its own, like a little beautiful little machine or a little storefront display, like all the pieces mm -hmm. are there and we're going to watch these forces clash. And it's there's something about, I think, all great artworks uh, – that's like that. All great artworks, world, you know, taking the word world as a kind of verb for what they do. They show us a world. And this film really does that well. And But this film also, in terms of its plot and the action and the, what unfolds, is also kind of a, it's a meditation on the power of places. Uh, mm -hmm. The film takes place in a special location, a location where forces that can be ignored or maybe relativized or just kind of put under control and normally are unleashed and allowed to freely flow. And we're, we're able to see the things that seethe under the surface normally. We're, we can see them in front of us, the wind and the, the mountain and the, the frescoes on the, just the fact that they, they basically build a convent in a palace filled with frescoes of naked women everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> so just like the, those ironies that are just so rich. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the idea of the genius Loki, the spirit of place as it functions in this film. And this is another parallel which this film has with uh, with The Shining, 
which is also really about the spirit, like literally the spirits of a place. So the genius Loki being an idea from the Roman cosmological vision that certain places have their own spirits and the spirit doesn't necessarily reside in a particular stone or a tree or brook, but in a particular bend of that brook where the trees are just so and the rocks are just so in that place, that little glen or that dell or whatever it is, is somehow imbued with its own spirit, its own nymph. And, uh, and the and the way that that in a sense you can only really know a place like that by personifying it, by giving it a face, by giving it an mm. agency that we normally would attribute only to other humans, we moderns meaning. Uh, and in fact, in this film, there's a strange rift, which is a, she's a character that comes in and out of the film. She's played by Gene Simmons. Uh, she's a, a young Indian girl. This, by the way, being one of the things that I think a modern audience yeah. would find problematic, that it's an English woman uh, who's been sort of blacked up a little bit, not yeah. blacked up, but sort of um, browned, up. A, yeah. browned up, I suppose, uh, to look Indian. And she doesn't look Indian. She looks she looks like an English girl with yeah. shoe polish yeah. on her. This was done a lot back then, which is strange because otherwise they have they have lots of Indian actors in the film. Um, yeah. but for some reason with her, they chose to use a, a white actress, but anyways, she comes into the story and she is one of those figures that we see on the walls. One of those beautiful, sensuous, you know, women that, you know, a portrait of one of the former wives of the former general come to life. It's almost like she jumped off the wall and yeah, she's, it's, it's exactly yeah. right. And then she, you see her dancing through the rooms and just, oh, she feels completely. That's such a beautiful scene. Yeah. Just the way that she, she's like. Um, completely at home. Yeah. Completely at home in this place and never speaks. Just she's, she's like this resident spirit, this kind of um, yeah pixie that lives in the place. Mm -hmm. And um that's it. I mean, of course, there's a diegetic or whatever kind of narrative reason why she comes in. Dean brings her in because she's a, a girl in the village who's an orphan. She has nowhere to go. So he asks the nuns to take care of her. But on the more imaginal level, she's literally like coming off the wall and, and reinvesting the place with its with its own spirit, such that now the nuns can't ignore it anymore. And she yeah. she pops up in weird places and she she becomes a kind of like an errant cause, a kind of like little shard of chaos flowing through the ordered world of the nuns and presaging uh, the eventual unraveling of the whole operation. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I didn't think of that, but you're right. She's like a pixie or a nymph that lives in the place. So when the young general... Not the general's son that died, but the other son. And the reason the film is called Black Narcissus is because he uses a perfume called Black Narcissus. And Sister Ruth at one point says, oh, that's a good name for him, Black Narcissus, because he's so conceited, like a peacock. And he isn't really. Oh, he's always wearing splendor and finery. Wonderful, wonderful costumes. But he's actually kind of a... He's a very endearing character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very honest, very straightforward in his way, but his reactions to things are never, they're always off from the nun's reactions to things. So for example, there's a funny scene where Dean shows up to their Christmas service drunk. And at first he's singing along lustily with all the Christmas hymns in a beautiful baritone voice. 
And then when he's saying goodbye, he's sort of slurring his words and stumbling. And Sister Claudia gets really offended that he showed up drunk. And she's furious and she just tells him off. She says, uh, you're abominable when you're drunk and objectionable when you're not or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and he says... I entirely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Before riding off on this tiny little pony, singing, Oh, I can't be a nun. Oh, I shan't be a nun. It's a very funny scene. And just, you can see steam coming out of Sister Clodic's ears. And then the young general is just standing there saying, He has such a nice voice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just yeah. not quite on the same wavelength of the emotional tenor of that I scene. I love that character. Him, the, the two of them, him and uh, so the young general who ends up running off with uh, Kanchi. With Kanchi. Yeah, the, the spirit of place character. He ends up running yeah. off with her. As a dyad, they form a kind of rift in the film. You could take them out in a way. You could take them out and have the whole film happen, but they become very essential. Thematically, yeah. they're very important. Just as a side note, there's a scene where the young general is talking to Sister Clara about, they're talking about Jesus. And uh, she, he, he wants to take lessons. He wants to learn. He wanted to go to Cambridge. Now he can't because his older brother died. He has to, you know, fill in his shoes. So now he wants to study at the convent. He wants to learn physics and all kinds of stuff that they probably couldn't teach him anyways. He wants to learn astronomy and mathematics. And he thinks the nuns can give him all this. And Sister Clara says, well, no, we can't. We, we'd only teach young children and girls. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, well, this, that's not very fair to, to men. And uh, she says, well, it's just the way it is. And he's like, he points at the crucifix and he's like, well, Jesus was a man. And she says, he took the form of a man. I just love that. <laughs> because again, it's it points to this idea of this neutral ground that we need yes, to believe. Jesus exactly. just looks like a man. He wasn't actually a man. Every nothing's actually everything. Everything's actually this kind of like white nothingness <laughs> that mm, things nice. float on top of. But the young general sees, well, obviously he's a man. Like I can, see, I can see he's hiding his junk, but I can see him on the cross, you know? <laughs> and uh and uh again, he's kind of this um this kind of naive naive realist in the world of metaphysicians who just takes things as they are, um, in a way, asks of each thing what it is. Exactly. And in a sense, so is, even though she doesn't speak, so is um, Kanchi, because she just reacts to the environment. She's just in this place. There's sensual, beautiful paintings of beautiful women on the wall. So she dances like they seem to be dancing. She just reacts to the place as it is. And in a way, they get the happy ending because- He ends up, she steals a, uh, a brass um, chain from the church to make a necklace out of it. And so she's, uh, there's this other character we haven't mentioned named Aya, kind of bird, crazy bird lady who lives in the palace. And she's whipping Kanchi for having stolen this. And then she hands the whip and for over. Getting, and for getting caught. And for getting caught, right. And she's <laughs> pissed off at her for being so stupid that she let herself be caught in yeah. this way. And then the young general shows up. And so Aya gives him the whip and says, finish your job, be a real man and finish this beating. Like, And instead he gives her his own gold necklace. And then he disappears with her. They kind of leave the story from then on. We see her briefly again. But um, in a way, it's this beautiful ode to a kind of, just a kind of naive... I wouldn't call it naive at all, but a kind of direct realism of the world as it is. Yeah, like a common absolutely. world that we all share, a common world absolutely. that we can all live in. That and, they uh, live in and the nuns just can't. Like 
it, well, or except maybe by the end they do. I don't know. But it's maybe like the nuns can't. Maybe the holy man can't. Maybe uh, Dean can't. Yeah. yeah. But, but the young general but and Kanchi can. And, yeah, uh, it's true. Yeah. And there's something so charming also. But I mean, I love what you said about like she is like a, like a nymph that lives in the place. And this is just like, you know, these stories, these pastorals of like uh, a young man who falls in love with a wood nymph or, is right. car- car- or carried off to fairy and marries a fairy princess. It just has that kind of... Um, flavor to it. Yeah, it does. And there's mention on two occasions in the film of the story of the prince and the beggar maid, or the, yes. king, the king and the beggar maid, which is an actual ballad I read up on it, uh, that is referenced. I mean, there are later versions of it, but it's referenced in Shakespeare and stuff. It's just one of those fables that floated around the post-medieval world, probably throughout the medieval era as well, of uh, just a story of a king who never had any interest in women. He's never been attracted to women. He has no interest in sex or getting married or anything like that. But then one day he sees a beggar, a woman, a girl on the street, and she's dressed in rags, but he immediately falls in love with her. And so he asks her to marry him. She does. And then she becomes a great queen. And um, there's just something about that that it's, strangely enough, it's the king who can look at a, at a girl who can bring him nothing. There's no big dowry. There's no advantage Uh, to him marrying, but choosing her just as she is. uh, The most human thing you could do, in a sense, flies in the face of the entire social structure, Mm -hmm. right? The entire edifice of hierarchies and meanings and values in which the king subsists as king evaporates. He just chooses her. But because of that, the kingdom and the kingdomness of the kingdom, the system is redeemed because the one exceptional act of transgressing against the rules is what reminds us of that in whose name the rules exist. It's, mm-hmm. It redeems the world. And I, I just love that little gesture in the film, which you could yeah. literally remove and still have a movie that, wor- that works, but put yep. in there gives us, maybe gives us that C, neither A nor B, but... Maybe this is the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. That's excellent. That's excellent. I have one last thing I want to talk about. Okay. I have a friend who says, yeah, I really like the show, but I wish you would talk about music more. And I always feel like I'm always dragging music into our conversation, sometimes by artificial means, just because I'm a music guy and I like to talk about music. And maybe this interpretation will seem forced, like I'm just trying to haul the conversation back to my pet topic. But... There is actually a line in the blurb that appears in the little booklet in the Criterion Collection DVD of Black Narcissus. Somebody says, this is a a musical film. Mm. I I forget, I didn't bring the box with me, so I can't read it. But it says something to the effect of like a film that is sort of trying to be like music. And I think that this is quite true for a couple of different reasons. Number one, the film score is wonderful. And apparently the whole climactic scene where Sister Ruth has disappeared, she went down into the village to declare her love for Mr. Dean, who rejects her. And this uh, just breaks her. She has this, goes off in a, a rage. She becomes a demon. Yeah, she becomes a demon. She goes back up the mountain and hides in this labyrinthine palace and starts stalking Sister Clodic, And it's actually genuinely eerie and sort of scary. It's, uh, um, it's, that's when the film, to me, reached the level of absolute masterpiece. The end, I was like, yeah. 
whoa, I did not see this coming. This transformation. It's a slow burn and a huge payoff. Yeah. For our listeners, if you watch the film, expect it to be slow for the first hour. Yeah. It really takes a while to get going. Expect to wonder why Phil Ford recommended this film for about 40 minutes. Yes. Before before you suddenly go, oh, maybe more, more like an hour and a half. I was like, why? Why? And then all of a sudden at the end, I'm like, Oh, and then you saw it, right? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, for sure. Because by the end, it's it's really weird. And in fact, I can't think of a film except for The Shining that captures that just eeriness yeah. of a big, threatening place. A place that we've been living in for this film, but it starts feeling threatening and weird and alien. And yet it wasn't. That's the way. That's what this film pulls off that The Shining doesn't. In The Shining, that the hotel is eerie from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, in this, you're like, this place is beautiful. But at the end, at night, it becomes this other place. It but it very makes sinister. perfect sense. You know, you've been looking at this place the whole time. You just didn't see it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. This, it's this apocalyptic unveiling that shows yes. us what was, what's been going on all along. It's just crazy. That this is a demonic place. Yeah, right. And, and it does this without resorting to anything supernatural. So yeah, it doesn't seem like a kind of movie that would be a weird studies fodder. But Ruth is the demon. She is the room 237. She's the... Um, you don't need a supernatural figure. You have Ruth. And Ruth is just silently. We don't, she doesn't, after she leaves Dean's place, she doesn't speak. She's a shadow flitting through the hallways of this vast palace uh, with only a handful of nuns in it. You know, Sister Claudette prays, has, has, keeps vigil throughout the night. And as she's praying, she hears things. And, yeah, and we know that Ruth is stalking her. And then finally... The climactic scene where it's six o'clock in the morning and Sister Clodek decides she's going to go out and ring the bell, the, the temple bell, which is right at the edge of a sheer cliff that looks like it drops down thousands of feet. Um, a bell which formerly must have announced the commencement of orgies, but now it rings the hours of the divine office. Yeah. In the novel, it's, it's explained as the one thing that the previous failed mission, the brothers who came. Oh, Okay. That there was a gong that they had taken down and replaced with a bell. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But you got to imagine well, the gong. that, the yeah, gong the then. gong probably yeah. was like, all right, yeah. it's <laughs> fucking time. <laughs> uh, okay. And yeah, and now and now it's we've got a different metal object says now it's praying time. Yeah, exactly. Which is but the same f- thing. <laughs> Which yeah. is yeah, it's all <laughs> it, it's the same thing. I mean, after all, this the Himalayas, a home of tantric sexuality. Right. We're fucking and praying two signs of the same coin. Right. Teresa Vavala. Teresa Vavala's uh, um, descriptions of her mystical experiences are profoundly erotic you know there's been an eroticism of prayer since the start i think no if you don't know that there's eroticism in prayer you don't know prayer and you don't know eroticism so far as i'm concerned but neither here nor there or i mean it's actually relevant but moving on um the whole final scene where clodek you know haggard from a sleepless night comes out to ring the bell and then you see sister ruth come out and she just looks like a fucking demon. Like, it's really scary. She looks like she's coming out of a Japanese horror movie. Yeah, totally. That whole sequence is set to a single unbroken composition, musical composition. And I saw there's a, 
little featurette that went in the Criterion Collection DVD called Painting with Light, which is all about Jack Cardiff's brilliant management of color. Uh, he was a Technicolor specialist, and I learned all kinds of things about how Technicolor works and, and never realized that it's like this giant camera with four separate spools of film, a green, a red, a blue, and a monochrome, like grayscale. Uh, I think I think those are the colors, but it's just basically hmm. shooting four films at once. And then what you're going to do is you're going to collect all of those images into full color image. And Cardiff was brilliant at both mixing colors, but also setting up colors and all kinds of clever things. Like, for example, an old fashioned Technicolor it tended to pull the red out of things. So people's lips uh, would always look like they had lipstick on. So Cardiff was having them put flesh tone base on their lips right uh which becomes important actually because this scene where we realize that ruth has gone completely mad is where she dresses in a red dress she has secretly ordered lipstick and a compact and a red dress and some high heels she's ordered some finery because she wants to quit the order and go and make love to mr dean Mr. Yeah. Dean doesn't want any part of this, and he has no idea that this is what's been going on in her head. But in her head, she has to dress up beautifully firm. She'll come down the mountain, go to him, and they'll be happy ever after. And of course, that doesn't happen, and that's what breaks her. But the scene where Sister Claudic is walking down the dormitory hallway and hearing each sister in their room doing their typical thing, Sister Philippa praying, Sister Honey crying, Sister Blanche snoring, and then... Nothing. She doesn't hear anything coming from Sister Ruth's room. Except the lights on. She's the lights on. Then it goes off. She knocks on the door and the light goes off. And she importunes. She keeps hammering away saying like, I don't want to have to wake up the other sisters and blah, blah, blah. And she finally breaks into the room. And there is Sister Ruth dressed not in her habit, but dressed in a red dress and with her hair kind of made up. And that's the most commonplace thing in the world. Just look like any woman you would have seen in the London tube in 1947. Except it's shocking. Yeah. It's actually shocking. Yeah. It's an image of madness, this red dress. And there's a scene where she's putting on makeup. So Clodagh refuses to leave. So she and Sister Ruth just sit there staring at each other. You get the impression for hours. And at one point, Sister Ruth pointedly ignores Sister Clodagh and starts putting on lipstick. Yeah. And you see a tight close-up of the lipstick going on her lips and being ever so slightly off. Yeah. And it, you see these cracked white lips with the, the lipstick going on, and it looks so garish and clownish. It's such a great, weird moment. And apparently that was where the having that uh, neutral base applied to the lips really comes into play because the lipstick pops. And apparently the director said... You can't look in a mirror while you're putting on lipstick. And so the actress, what's her name? The woman Kathleen who played, Byron. Yeah, Kathleen Byron is putting on lipstick and is a little bit off. And that's it was a perfect direction because it makes her look fucking insane. This like yeah. clown makeup. It's weird and garish. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going off a little bit on a tangent about how that is set up. Um the the point that I wanted to make was that the final scene where she's in her dress is torn and wet and her hair's flying every which way. And she looks, as you say, like a figure from a Japanese horror film. Um, 
that whole scene is shot to a single piece of music that was written for the film. And usually the way films are shot is like you shoot the film and then the music comes in at the end. Yeah, you score it after. Yeah. Yeah. The scoring is like the last thing. Yeah. But apparently they decided for this climactic scene to have the music first and then shoot the scene to the music. Right. Which I didn't notice watching it. Uh, I watched, of course, noticed it once I knew it and I saw it again. Um, but it's not so much that that I want to talk about as musical, but actually the lipstick bit is more relevant. The way that they use colors. I mean, obviously in symbolic ways, so red is the kind of color of madness. But the amount of work that goes into playing with color, painting with light is the title of that little featurette. And it occurred to me, I was like, this is very musical, that what they're doing is, okay, so music is this abstract play of sounds. And even though they don't refer to anything, they're not like words that refer to things, you know, sounds don't refer to anything but themselves. And yet the pleasing arrangement of them can evoke emotions, like very strong feelings in us and memories and all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So they're doing the same thing with, with color. color. Yeah. Instead well, and, of and, and, an abstract arrangement of tones, it's an abstract arrangements of color that evokes, I'm getting back to that thing of genius Loki, the sense of place, the, the importance of that place and the eeriness of that place by the end. It comes so much, it's so much of a musical thing. The way they make you feel that has so much to do with the music of colors that Jack Cardiff orchestrated in his Technicolor filming. You're absolutely right. You know, like um, when I was watching this, I was I was like, wow, this is a Kubrick movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, and I, exactly. I, and I, I don't know. I, I don't remember reading, because I've read quite a bit on Kubrick. I used to be, a, I still am a big fan, but I used to be pretty obsessed with him when I was starting off as a filmmaker, as many young filmmakers are. Um, I don't remember him saying he, he, he was influenced by uh, Michael Powell and... Uh, the archers, they're Powell and Pressburger, the guys who made this film. But I wouldn't be surprised if he was. Um, and I remember very clearly Kubrick saying that a film functions as music, first and foremost. That, oh, wow. That, that, that films, cinema, and he's not the only one to say this. Um, Hitchcock said something similar, that making a film is like playing an organ where the keys are like people's emotions, you know? Hmm. And, and it's about... He, he, the uh, the affects don't just come through the narrative uh, or the dialogue, but through the arrangement and rhythm of lines and color uh, mm. in time. You know, yeah. um, Tarkovsky was all about this, and his book. Gillo Ponacarvo, the director of Battle of Algiers, weirdly enough, was trying to create a musical film, even though there's almost no music in it. Yeah, well, I mean, and this goes back to what we've said before, which is music kind of captures the formal aspect of art perfectly, you know, it's like, uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde said from the point of view of form, music is the, the most important artwork. Mm. Um, from the point of view of, I think what he said, expression, the actor's craft is king or something like that. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's like, it's, there's one aspect of art, which we commonly forget, especially in a, in a time like ours, where we almost systematically reduce art to its messaging to its yeah. content, to what it means, to what it's saying. Um, it's it's healthy in such an environment to remember music because of music, which often uh, is excluded from discussions of 
the political nature of art and all that. I'm sure that in musicology, yeah. there's plenty of people talking about the political implications of Beethoven or Indeed. Wagner. Um, Very much so. But, but even with just purely instrumental music, th th there's something about music that reminds us of the importance of formalism in all art forms, including, yeah. of course, cinema. And uh, you're right. This is a formalist masterpiece. It's a film that works on every level, uh, narratively, in terms of its performances, in terms of its directorial choices, but of course, in its cinematography, which reflects perfectly the, the themes or the, the weird affect at the center of it all. This weird, um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to sum it up, this, uh, this symbol that the film together constitutes, you know, that the film as a whole brings forward. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.